0: Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our series of podcasts about the signs of the times and the end of the age. In our first episode, we asked the question, when is Jesus going to return? Well, from the Bible, we simply cannot set dates. But from world events, we can pick up clues. In the second episode, we began a study of this figure known as the Antichrist. Dr. Arthur Pink said, The deeper I have studied this subject in the Bible, the more surprised I am at the prominent place which is given in Scripture to this Antichrist, this son of perdition there is an amazing wealth of detail which, when carefully collected and arranged, supplies a vivid biography of the one who is shortly to appear and take the government of the world upon his shoulders." Well, our attempt here in three or four different podcasts is to collect and to arrange that material from the Bible. So here's what we've seen so far. The Antichrist is intimated in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 15, and also in the person of Nimrod. He is foreshadowed in some way by Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, but it is the prophet Daniel who really lays out the profiles of his personage in Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 11. And it's Daniel who gives us history's most vivid precursor of the Antichrist, this figure, Antiochus IV of Syria. We get additional glimpses of this master criminal, the man of lawlessness, and Isaiah, and in Matthew, but it is the Apostle Paul who does in the New Testament what Daniel did in the Old Testament, and that is to put flesh and blood on this man so we can see him clearly as he is and for what he is. And the critical passage in Paul's writings is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you're where you can get your Bible, be turning there. And while you are, I'm eager to tell you that this series of podcasts on issues related to the future is brought to you by my new book, The 50 Final Events in World History. Everything that I'm saying in this podcast is to supplement the information that I put in in that book. And that book, The 50 Final Events in World History, is my understanding of the book of Revelation. I've tried to explain it so simply that a middle schooler can understand it. I know one thing during the course of my ministry, nothing has attracted more interest from people than when I preach or teach on the book of Revelation, which I love doing. And now It's been my great joy to be able to put this in book form with charts and graphs and maps. It's going to be great for small group studies, and I think that you'll enjoy reading it. So it's available now for pre-order. You can go to my website, robertjmorgan.com. You'll see a sign there to pre-order the 50 final events in world history. And when you do, there are other resources that will be yours absolutely free. So check it out. The 50 final events in world history at robertjmorgan.com, available now for pre-order. Well, now in this podcast, we're coming to one of the Bible's most important passages about the Antichrist, and that's in the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul came into the city of Thessalonica during his second missionary tour in the early 50s That would be about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. He planted a church there, and he told them that Jesus was coming back again. He gave them some information about the return of Christ. And this just fascinated these new Christians. But Paul did not have time to give them a lot of information before he was driven out of town. And he later learned that the Thessalonians were asking a lot of questions, and they were speculating about the return of Christ, and they were a little confused about it, and some other people had confused them. And so Paul wrote two different letters, which are the most eschatological of all of Paul's writings. He deals specifically with the Antichrist in this one premier chapter, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So I'm going to read this for you, uh, or with you, and then we will go back and we'll look at it in greater detail. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So this passage, I think, is very clear and straightforward and really easy to interpret, except for one important detail, as we'll see. So let's just work our way through it, going back to chapter 2 and verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, the second coming, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become unsettled, don't fall apart, or be alarmed by the teaching, allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Somebody had apparently been telling the Thessalonians that their traveling friend, the Apostle Paul, who was here and hither and yon in the empire, had been saying that now the day of the Lord has already come. Jesus is back on earth. Jesus has come again. There were rumors that Jesus had returned. Now, remember... These early Christians didn't have all of the information we have. They did not have the entire Bible. They knew that Jesus was coming again. They assumed it was quickly. And now there was a rumor that he had already got back. So what should we do, they wondered. Can we go see him? Where do we need to go to see him? What happens next? So Paul told them to settle down and not to be unsettled or alarmed by any false reports. And in one of the most biblical biblically important passages that we have about the prophetic future. Paul tells us that Jesus will not return to earth until three things happen. The great and the final coming of Christ to earth will not occur until three things take place. Number one, the rebellion or the apostasy occurs. Number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed and number three, the restrainer is removed. He gives them in that order. He mentions the rebellion first, and so let's start there. Verse three says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. The day of the Lord will not come until a great rebellion takes place. Now, the word A rebellion is the Greek word uh, "apostasia," from which we get our English word apostasy. It means a revolt, or a rebellion, or to forsake, or to fall away, or to turn away. It can mean to depart. Some people believe this refers to the departure or the rapture of the church. But most scholars believe that it's more likely, in this context, that it refers either to a falling away from the faith by members of the formal church or a rebellion of the human race against God. The New Bible Commentary says that an apostate church is not the primary thought here, but rather a great outbreak of evil in the world against God. Josephus uses this same word in his writings to describe the Jewish rebellion against Rome. And I think this is probably the sense in which we should take this. The world will enter, at some point, a state of active rebellion against God. Now, the spirit of this, of course, is already in the air, and Paul says that. But in my own mind, I equate this with the days immediately leading up to and including the tribulation in which the human race will overtly begin to rebel against almighty god it seems to me that that is clear beyond dispute elsewhere paul wrote but mark this there will be terrible times in the last days People will be lovers of themselves, lover of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Jesus said that before he comes again, There will be many deceivers who go out into the world, and he says there will be wars and rumors of wars, and the love of many will wax cold. So in the days leading up to Christ and to his coming, there will be a global rebellion, an overt rebellion against him that will consummate the evil of human history. Now, the second thing will be the revelation of this man of lawlessness. As the rebellion against God takes place, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, notice that Paul uses here the word man, M-A-N. He doesn't say demon or devil or force or power or spirit. This is referring to a man, to a literal human being. Verse three says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, or the man of perdition, as the older translation said. The Bible knowledge commentary said Paul used a tense for the verb is revealed, which indicates that this revelation will be a decisive act that will take place at a definite moment in history. The word revealed here, For the man of lawlessness is the same word used of the second coming of Jesus Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, when it says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven. So this man of lawlessness will appear dramatically like a pseudo-Christ. And later in the same chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians and verse 9, the word parousia is used of the coming of Christ Uh, or is used of the coming of the antichrist which is the word that is used to describe the coming of christ as well and we're told here that this man of lawlessness will come with signs and wonders and miracles he will exalt himself above god in other words this man of lawlessness will make a dramatic entrance onto the stage of history and we'll get more details about that in a few moments later in the chapter Verse 3 says that he is a man doomed to destruction, and later in this chapter again, we'll learn how he will be destroyed. But now there is one action or operation of the man of lawlessness that is the most definitive thing that he ever does. The pivotal point in his career, the apex of everything he does, will be when he desecrates the Jewish temple with his own image. And this is verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. He, the man of lawlessness, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. He is going to somehow, in some way, set himself up in God's temple, which I think will be the rebuilt third temple in Jerusalem. Now, if this sounds familiar, you may remember that in a previous podcast, I read from Daniel chapter 9. It says there, a ruler will arise whose army will destroy the city and the temple, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and the end will come like a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people, that is the people of Israel, for a period of one set of seven years. But after half of this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed on the defiler is finally poured out on him. And Jesus said in his message on Mount Olivet, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now there is consistency here, I hope you can see it. Daniel, Jesus, and Paul are all predicting the same event. This man of lawlessness will suddenly arise. He will march into Jerusalem. He will order his own image to be set up in the rebuilt temple, desecrating it, and that will trigger the last half of the tribulation, a period of distress such as the world has never seen and will never see again. We'll look at this again in more detail next week as we study how this is portrayed in the book of Revelation. But you can see this set out clearly in Daniel and in the Olivet Discourse, which is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in the book of Revelation, that at some point a man is going to come, a man of tremendous evil. He will be dramatically revealed with enormous power, and he will have established a peace treaty with Israel, which now he will break. In the very middle of it, establishing his own image in the temple and thus triggering the last three and a half years of great tribulation. Now all of that seems quite clear to me, but now we come to verses 5 through 7 in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and these present more of a challenge. This is the third event that must occur before Christ comes again. It is the third in terms of Paul's listing it, but it seems to be the first in terms of chronological occurrence. Remember, we have a global rebellion against God and we have the man of lawlessness revealed. Paul is saying, the second coming, the full return of Christ will not occur until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness has been revealed. Now, verse five. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him, the man of lawlessness, back. Something is holding back the Antichrist. Verse 6, And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, in the book of First John, as we'll see next time, the Apostle John said that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. And here Paul says the same thing. The secret power of lawlessness is at work right now, but it cannot reach its ultimate manifestation with the actual man of lawlessness until... The restrainer is taken away. There is something restraining or preventing the man of lawlessness from appearing. There is something tapping down evil right now in the world and restraining it. And that person or that thing must be removed, sort of like a dam holding back the waters of a lake. And then the flood of the end times will gush forth and engulf the world with the Antichrist and the global rebellion. So there is some force of good in the world right now, and in some way that force is restraining evil. The Greek word here for to restrain is kateo, and it means to hold down, to suppress, to restrain. But to our everlasting consternation, Paul does not tell us who or what the restrainer is. There are two great schools of thought about it. I mean, there are a hundred different ideas, but I think uh, in terms of valid theories or hypotheses, there are two great schools about it. Many people believe that this restrainer is the born again church of Jesus Christ. Those who believe that the church will be taken out, resurrected and raptured from the earth before the man of lawlessness is revealed and before the great tribulation burst forth, well, they hold to what we call a pre-tribulation or perhaps a mid-tribulation view of the church, that Jesus will come in the sky and call his church to safety before the tribulation begins or at least before the great tribulation begins in the middle of the seven-year period. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the restrainer is God himself, his program, his hand of providence and grace and mercy and power, his program of the kingdom with the spreading of the gospel. Now, there is an important point of grammar here. The restrainer is called both it using a neuter article and him using a masculine article so the restrainer is both a person and a thing. If the reference is to the rapture of the church, that would make sense. The Holy Spirit indwells God's people, and if the church is raptured, both the church and the Spirit that dwells within them would be caught up and taken out of the way. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit would no longer be on earth. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, and I think the Holy Spirit would work on earth the way the Holy Spirit worked on earth in the days of the Old Testament before the day of Pentecost. But in the sense of spirit indwelled believers making up a church, that would be raptured. Well, if God and His restraining grace or His restraining program is this one who is going to be taken out of the way, well, that too would be both Him and it. So in my view, the restrainer is either the church or it is God and his providential hand of restraint. And so the man of lawlessness is not going to be removed until either the church or God's hand of providence is removed. The purpose for this podcast isn't to settle that argument. We will look at that later in this series of podcasts. But My purpose now is to describe this man of lawlessness. So let's go on to verse eight. After the restrainer is taken out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The man of lawlessness will be overthrown. He will be blinded by the splendor of our Lord's coming and slain by the breath or by the words that come from the mouth of Christ. It is the words of our Lord Jesus, his command, his shout, that will instantly destroy this man of lawlessness. Now we see a hint of this back in Daniel chapter eight, if you'll remember back to the last time. This man of lawlessness is called a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue, He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astonishing devastation and will succeed at whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. And when Israel feels secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, Daniel said, he will be destroyed, but not destroyed by human power. He will not be killed by human armies. He will be destroyed by the power of the shout and the word and the breath of Jesus Christ. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11. It says, he the Messiah will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. And let's look at Revelation chapter 19. We'll deal with this again next week. But this describes the moment when Christ returns. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Christ coming again. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And look at verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. What weapon does the Lord Jesus Christ have as he comes again? It's pictured here as a sword, a sharp sword coming from his mouth. It's the double-edged sword of the word of God. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, the Lord will overcome this man of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth and by the splendor of his coming. The very glory of the Son of God returning in clouds of dazzling splendor, accompanied by all of the angels and all of the powers of heaven, will have a fatal effect. It will be too much for the armies of the world to process. Now, in the remainder of the passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul gives us some more details about the person and the life and the career of this man of lawlessness, I'm back in 2 Thessalonians now, chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Now, the man of lawlessness is not Satan. It's quite clear here, he is distinct from Satan. There are two personages of evil. There are actually three, as we'll see next week in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, but here there are two personages of evil. One is that supernatural being Satan, and the other is the human being, the man of lawlessness. But the man of lawlessness is closely identified with Satan. They are in league together. His coming is in accordance with how Satan works. Verse 9 continues, He, this man of lawlessness, will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Paul uses three phrases. He talks about displays of power and signs and wonders. All three of these words or phrases are used elsewhere in the Bible for the miracles of Jesus. This man of lawlessness will be given satanic power to try to replicate miracles the way Jesus did. In this way, he will be the pseudo-Christ, the false Christ, or the Antichrist. He will deceive the whole world. We'll see that again next week in Revelation. They will view him as a hero and even as a deity. Verse 10 says that those who are deceived and who as we'll see in the book of Revelation, bow down to and receive the mark of the beast, the man of lawlessness, they will perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Verse 11, for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. That's Paul's great treatment of the man of lawlessness. So, based upon now this third presentation in my series of podcasts on the Antichrist, let's put all of this together. We find that the Antichrist will be in some way the ultimate seed of Satan. He will bring to consummation the ungodly empires started by Nimrod. He will be to the world something resembling what Pharaoh was to Egypt and the oppressor that Pharaoh was to Israel, and the recipients of the plagues, such as we saw in the book of Revelation. The spirit of evil is in the world right now, but the man of lawlessness himself will show up in a time of conflict after the removal of something that is now restraining him. He will make his entrance during a time of worldwide rebellion against God. He will emerge Out of a 10-member global confederation, he will have a vile tongue that lashes out at God and be very blasphemous and very bitter against anything Jewish or Christian or divine or godlike. He will be a fierce-looking ruler, a master of intrigue. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will work in accordance with the power of Satan. He will do as he pleases. He will cast off submission to any god other than himself, and he will oppose himself to everything that is divine. He will worship military power. He will make a peace treaty with Israel and break that covenant halfway through its seven years. He will place his own image in the rebuilt Jewish temple and demand to be worshiped, and his image will be an abomination that causes desolation. It will desecrate the temple. He will oppress the Jewish people and wage war against Israel for three and a half years with the evil of a Leviathan. He will demand to be worshiped as God. He will be lawless a law unto himself, and he will deceive the whole world. He will be even worse the Antiochus the Fourth, who brutalized Israel. Between the days of the Old and New Testaments, he will surround Jerusalem and wage war against it, but he will be defeated, but not by his own power. He will come to his end, and the wrath of God will be poured out on him. He will be blinded by the splendor of our Lord's appearing and slain, By the power of the Word of Christ, and he will be replaced by the true Christ, the Son of Man, who will return to claim his throne over the world, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and this Christ will reign forever and ever. So, this is the biblical biography of the Antichrist up through the Pauline letters. So next week, we will conclude our mini-series on the Antichrist and continue with our overall series on the precipice of prophecy by looking at what the Apostle John has to say about this Antichrist in both his epistles and in his book of Revelation. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Please remember to check out my book, The 50 Final Events in World History. All of this is supplemental to that book. I think that we need to be well-schooled in eschatology, which is a study of the last things. The Bible has so much to say about it, and nothing gives me more hope as I look at the headlines than knowing what the Bible says and what the book of Revelation says. And you can study through this book. I would like to sit down at your bedside table or your kitchen table or your porch swing and go through the book of Revelation with you chapter by chapter and I can do it through this book The 50 Final Events in World History so pre-order it now at robertjmorgan.com This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media Audio editing was by Courtney Warner Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music by Elijah Rowe. Look for the transcript of this podcast soon on the blog page of my website, robertjmorgan.com, where you will find many other resources. And if you are on Facebook or Twitter, join me every morning for a one-minute study through the Bible in my 59-second sermons. Well, thank you for listening, and may God be with you